Well, hey, welcome to the February 2017 version of Watermark's Equipping webinar. My name is Nathan. I'm the Director of Equipping and Apologetics. And if you've been on these before, you've, you've heard my voice. Uh, you also know that I normally introduce at this moment Nika Spalding, but she is not here. <laughs> She's in Israel right now. Doing uh, yeah, enjoy, yeah, enjoying uh, hopefully good weather and, and good friends and obviously an uh, extremely important place. I think she's she's experiencing Israel for the first time, yeah. right? I think the three that's of right. us have, have gone um, before, but Nika's that's this is her maiden voyage over there. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure she's having fun, and uh, she wanted obviously to let all you guys know that she misses being here. But in her stead, we have Connor Boyd, who is one of our equipping residents. Connor has his master's of theology from Dallas Seminary, and has been a just an awesome addition to our team for this year. So he's going to be uh, sitting in Nika's chair today. Welcome, Connor. Yeah, thank you. It's good to be with you guys. Awesome. We also put a blonde wig on Connor, so it feels, <laughs> feels more at home. And a, and and an a cat. Well, scarf. but he has so and an, an Oklahoma hat. Yeah. But there he you is go. actually from Oklahoma. Oh, That's one of the wow. things that Nika and Connor are sharing. Yeah. So if you start hearing the Oklahoma fight song, it's it's you can blame it on Connor. Or Nika's ha hacked in somehow from Israel. <laughs> Yeah, or both. And then the other voice you're hearing is Sylvia Bateman. She's going to be the one who's actually moderating your questions. So as you send questions in, she's the one that is going to be uh, taking those. And then if a question is asked that's pertinent to the conversation or if the same question is being asked over and over again, then she'll just kind of raise her hand and jump in and, and insert those questions into the conversation. That's how you'll interact with us. Well, today we have as our guest, uh, Dr. Mike Lacona. He is the Associate Professor of Theology at Houston Baptist University, and he is the author of a new book. He's author of multiple books, but the newest one that, that has come released last fall um, is titled, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? Uh, what We Can Learn from Ancient Biography. Um, so we, we really are blessed to have Mike. Uh, he's become, over the last year and a half, two years or so, a, a friend of mine, and is just a kindred spirit in his love for Christ. And and, uh, you know, is a scholar in his own right. He, we actually had a at the Evangelical Theological Society last fall. They featured his book and and uh, the book was well received by the academic community. So, Mike, we're blessed, man. Thanks for giving us your time and welcome to the webinar. Well, thanks. It's good to be with you guys. Well, hey, we're going to jump right into the, the topic for today, which is uh, really the, the topic of your book. Why are there differences in the Gospels? I. I think especially serving on the apologetics team here at Watermark, pretty often we get from people th this question of, hey, I'm reading Matthew and I'm reading Mark and I'm reading Luke, and, and they're very similar to one another. Um, and, and yet there, some of the chronology is different. Some of the like Matthew's genealogy of, of Jesus is different than Luke's. And uh, various Jesus is saying different things from the cross and events are happening at different times. And and then you throw into that those three, you know, into the mix, you throw the Gospel of John, which is um, which is like I think you said in your book that N.T. Wright kind of quips. He's like, hey, I, the Gospel of John is like my wife. Um, I I deeply love her, but I don't claim to understand her. You know. <laughs> And I thought that was good. But but uh, but then in John, you have a very different 
not not different in in major ways, but for sure a very different portrait of Jesus. And so, um, at, like I said, in, in our apologetics ministry, sometimes I'll get the question from people, hey, how is this reliable? I mean, if you have this many differences in the Gospels, some of them major, some of most of them minor, um, th- then how in the world can we think that this is reliable? How, how can we trust that this is actually an accurate representation of the life of Jesus. And so there's a lot of different things that are going on um, with those questions, but I thought we would take this hour and just really tackle that question. So I think a good place to start is, is just with that, that question of what, what are the gospels? What kind of genre do they fit into? How should we understand them? And then also what is the genre of ancient biography? How should we think about that? Yeah, well, that's a good question, Nathan. The majority of scholars, of New Testament scholars today, and I'm talking about, you know, whether they be moderates or agnostic, atheist, Jewish, or Christian, um, the majority of scholars, large majority, are now of the opinion that the Gospels are either part, they belong to Greco-Roman biography, or that they share much in common with that genre. There is debate over whether Luke is a biography or whether it's history, uh, and there's some debate over the same thing about Mark, that maybe Mark is meant to be an oral performance. But uh, all that's kind of, you know, we don't know the firm answers to all of those, but what we can say that, it, what we can say is that the Gospels certainly share much in common with that genre. Hmm. And the reason being is because there are certain qualities of ancient biography that we find in the Gospels. Hmm. For example, the reason it's a biography rather than a history is because it focuses on a main character rather than, than an era, an event, or a government. Mm-hmm. So uh, Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War focuses on that war, which lasted a few decades, um, longer than the Vietnam War. You've got Tacitus' Annals of Rome, which is a history of some of the events that are going on in the Roman Empire. Um, but biographies focus on a single individual. All right. You have, um, it was typical of biographies to focus, to begin by focusing briefly on a person's ancestry and then launching immediately into their public life, such as their military career, their political career, or as a traveling philosopher or religious figure. So many times there have been people who have asked, well, why don't the gospel tell us a whole lot more about the childhood of Jesus? Well, the reason they don't is because that was standard practice of ancient biography. Again, you talk about the person's ancestry, which the Gospels do. You have Mark that talks about Jesus being God with us, in in, in essence, um, and Luke, God with us. But Matthew and Luke give us the mechanism through which the incarnation occurred. So you've got that ancestry, and then boom, it launches right into the public uh, life, the ministry of Jesus, of his baptism, temptation in the wilderness, and and his uh, career. Um, a third characteristic is that the main subject's character is meant to be illuminated through um, the, the, the person's words and deeds. And this is mentioned in Plutarch's Life of Alexander, chapter 1, where he says, hey, you know, this is a biography, a life, they call it that. This is a life, it's not a history. That is not to say it doesn't record historical events. It's to say that a history, again, focuses on an event, a government, an era. It doesn't focus on a person. 
Mm-hmm. And Plutarch says the, the, the reason that he is going to leave out certain events when discussing these biographies that he's writing is because they made certain events which people would find entertaining, perhaps, um, and that they know occurred. They, he may not mention them because his purpose in a biography is to shed light on the character, the quality of that person. Yeah. Were they a good person? And things like that. And that's what we have in the biographies of Jesus. They are talking about what kind of a person he is. He is God's uniquely divine son. Even the Gospel of Mark uh, says that very clearly when we read it in view of its biographical genre. I can unpack that some if you want uh, as we get into this. Let me just give you one more quality, and there's like ten of them, but here's a fourth one. The the general length of an ancient biography was between ten and 20,000 words. And that's exactly what we find with the Gospels. Mm. Gospel of Mark at 11,300 words at the shortest, and the Gospel of Luke at 19,500 words as the longest. And the reason that they were made of this length is so that they could be read in a single sitting, because people did not have DVDs and uh, <laughs> you know television back then. Right. So they went by oral performances and, and reading literature, and that's what biographies were meant, so that they could be read in a single setting. Yeah, nowadays we would have to write the gospel in 140 characters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm hearing you say I'm hearing you say that there there is a pretty major difference between the genre of just a history only, which would be more concerned about recording events and uh, and giving a kind of a picture of the details and chronology of something happening versus a biography, which is which is kind of spotlighting and double clicking on a character and portraying that character in a in a certain light. Is that am I tracking with you right? Yes, that is correct. Now sometimes this just needs to be added that sometimes the lines between the genres could be blurred. Mm-hmm. So in Plutarch's life of Julius Caesar, um, it is a biography for sure. It features Caesar. It is the right length and things like that, but it does possess a hybrid of with history because it doesn't focus on the character of, of what kind of a person Caesar was. Mm-hmm. Instead, the focus is on what did he do that got him so popular with the average person, mm-hmm. the, the typical Roman. And um, so you could have hybrids. And so I think that that is why some say the Gospel of Luke is a history while others say it's a biography, I think it's a hybrid. It has some of the. I do think it's a biography, but it has those hybrid characteristics. So, what are some of the, as you've done your study in in this genre of literature, what are some of the distinctions that you would say, hey, this is marking uh, itself as Greco-Roman biography? Some of the compositional devices. What what's actually going on when you pay attention to the details? That would kind of be the the giveaway of, hey, this is this is. This falls under Greco-Roman biography. Yeah, well, let me say one thing, too, um, here, because we are saying Greco-Roman biography, not Jewish biography. Mm-hmm. And the reason being is because for some reason unknown to us, uh, Jews were not writing biographies of their sages during that period. So if it's a biography, Greco-Roman biography was the only game in town. Mm-hmm. And the characteristics, they are focusing on the main character, Jesus. You do have... A slight mentioning in the beginning of each of the four Gospels on his ancestry, 
before launching into Jesus' public life, um, you had the main characters, uh, the main subject's characters illuminated through the words and deeds. And, and this sheds great light on, on Jesus' divine quality in the Gospel of Mark, which until recently, many scholars were saying Mark does not even talk about Jesus' divinity. Mm. It's just, you know, it's his human quality as Messiah. But you think about this for a moment. When you read it in view of its biographical genre, how does the Gospel of Mark start off? It says, uh, as Isaiah the prophet said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths of your God. Um, and it's not talking about Jesus preparing the way for God. It's talking about John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Yeah, yeah. In chapter 2, Jesus heals a paralytic, forgives him his sins, and the Jewish leaders there say, well, that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Chapter 3, uh, you have Jesus, um, you have the Jewish leaders accuse him of uh, being Satan, who's casting out Satan. And Jesus uh, gives the illustration, says, no, look, if you're going to uh, uh, go and rob a, a, a house that's owned by a strong man, you must first go and find the strong man, and then you can plunder his house. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is basically saying by that that Satan is the strong man, and by doing the exorcisms that he's doing, he's actually shown that he has bound Satan and is plundering his kingdom. Mm-hmm. Well, what human can bind Satan? Right. You come to chapter 4. Jesus calms the wind and the waves which uh, the psalmist in Ecclesiastes says that that's something God does. Chapter 5, you've got something similar. Chapter 6, you've got Jesus walking on water, and yet Job says only God can walk on water. Uh, You've got people being raised from the dead. Jesus raises people from the dead, says only God can do that. Mm -hmm. And even though others, like Elijah, Elisha, Peter, Paul raised people from the dead, they did it based on praying to God. They did it in the name of Jesus, but Jesus did it in his own power. So you find this throughout the entire Gospel of Mark. It becomes crystal clear when you read it in its biographical genre, in view of that, that Mark is saying that Jesus is is no less than than God. Mm-hmm. So you've got these kinds of things, and then, of course, it's within the, the word limits, uh, general word limits of ancient biography. So they possess all these qualities of what ancient biography was like. And you do have flexibilities in the way things were reported in ancient biography and history, and we find that in the Gospels as well through these compositional textbooks you alluded to. Yeah, so so unpack those a little bit for us. Talk about some of those flexibilities, because I think most most people, when they see a difference or e- even a minor difference, because we were so formed by the, our 21st century Western way of thinking that pays so much attention to details and if to you know if in everything it doesn't shake out exactly the way we think it should then toss it out you know and and we live in an age where we have immediate access to video tapes to audio recordings to you know all of these things that we we read the gospels through those lens we can't not read it through those lens because that's that's our lens um but talk to us about some of the compositional devices that you just mentioned and, and how do they differ from our world today? Yeah, well, exactly in our world today, you know, like you said, we have video recordings, we have audio recordings, things like that that the ancients did not have. Yet in spite of that, 
when someone is reporting what another person said, they're select in what they're reporting. They take the things that is important only for their objective in writing. They will rephrase things. They will paraphrase. They will summarize. Uh, sometimes they will change words and things like that. Look, I've been quoted in newspapers and stuff. And I remember when the Los Angeles Times uh, quoted me several years ago, they paraphrased what I said. They changed the way I said it. Yeah, right. Um, but they changed it in such a way that they nuanced the meaning of what I was saying to come across as a little more adversarial uh, towards certain views than I actually was. Mm. Now, that's kind of deceptive and things like that. But even today, as long as we paraphrase, restate things, and summarize in a manner that accurately portrays what a person says, we're fine with that. And we do it even in spite of the fact that we have video recordings and, and audio recordings. Mm -hmm. Now, in antiquity, they would do this, these kinds of things as well. Um, they would, uh, first of all, let's start off with the smaller kinds of changes, alterations. And these are found in what are called the compositional textbooks. There were several of these in antiquity. The earliest we have, perhaps, is by a guy named Theon, who wrote in the first century. And that's perhaps, and we have Quintilian, he wrote one also, he wrote one in Latin, Theon wrote in Greek. And then we have some after that as well. But uh, what they do, and they don't invent these things, it's just our first recording of what some of these, they're called preliminary exercises. These were preliminary exercises that people, uh, young uh, men typically, sometimes you'd have women involved, but usually young men in their mid-teens who were in the tertiary stages of their education, they had learned to read, they had learned to write, and now they were going to learn to write uh, well. So they would learn to write eulogies, they would learn to put together legal briefs, they would learn to write narratives and things like this. And some of these preliminary exercises involve just simple ways, exercising is, in how to paraphrase. So one thing you could do is you could uh, replace a word, substitute it with a synonym. Another thing you could do would be to rearrange the grammar, the, the syntax. So like today in English, we usually put the subject first in the sentence, followed by the verb, and then perhaps a, a direct object. So uh, Nathan works at Watermark Church. But in Greek, it didn't matter what the word order was because the way the word ended would determine its part of speech. So it could actually be, at Watermark Church, Nathan works, mm -hmm. or works at Watermark Church, Nathan. Yeah. So you could change the syntax of a sentence just to paraphrase. Mm -hmm. Or you could, uh, uh, you could abbreviate, or you could expand uh, and, and add some thought to it in order like you could add some words to what a person had actually said in order to clarify what they were actually thinking or saying at that time. So it would not be to distort things, but it would be to clarify. Right. Um, you could change a statement to a question or a question to a statement or to a command, anything like that. You could take a teaching and expand it and create a dialogue out of it. So we find an example like this in Jesus' uh, giving uh, uh, on Palm Sunday. Uh, where he talks about the uh, parable of the vineyard and the wicked farmers, who, when the vineyard owner sends uh, servants to collect what's due, they beat them up, they kill them on several different occasions, and finally the vineyard owner sends his son, and they cast him out of the vineyard, and they kill him as well. And uh, so uh, in the accounts of Mark and Luke, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
in Mark and Luke, Jesus asks the question at the end, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and he will kill or destroy those wicked tenants and hand it over to others who will give him the due reward of what he, he is owed. But in Matthew's Gospel, he converts that into a dialogue. So when Jesus asks the questions, it's the Pharisees who answer it. When again, Jesus asks and answers the same question in Mark and Luke, the, the Pharisees are the Jewish leaders. In Matthew, answer the question. They answer it with a little more flair to it. And then Jesus follows up. Yes, and well did the prophet speak of you when he said blah, blah, blah. Right. So you see, and this is on a couple of occasions where Matthew usually turns a statement into a dialogue. So these are a couple of the minor things that are done that are actually prescribed if you're writing good literature, you're going to do these things. Right, right. And I think, too, there's, all, there's always the, the recognition of the author's voice I mean, his, and his intent. Like you said, I mean, the L.A. Times, when they interview you, they have an intent in what they're writing. I mean, uh, there's intent from the author to portray things in a, in a certain light based on, just like any good communicator would do, based on their audience based on the kind of current situation of, of what's going on with their audience. And then also the portrayal by the author of the picture that they're attempting to, to paint. Again, not just, just cold, hard facts, but the intent to, as, as you might see with a mosaic, you know, uh, hey, I'm, I'm putting this together yes. in a certain way so that you can see the main character and his character traits in a way, like you said, to emulate, or in some cases, an ancient biography to also to spurn, you know. Exactly. So talk to us a little bit about, but, you know, is there a, a distinction between these differences and in, in the way that the Gospels are written by the four different Gospel writers? Is there a distinction between differences between the Gospels and contradictions? Well, differences would be a general term, of course, and contradictions would be uh, more of a specific category. So a, a contradiction would be a difference, but a difference doesn't necessarily mean it's a contradiction, right? Right, right. So, um, like, for example, when the Titanic sank, some of the survivors said that the Titanic broke in half before it sank, and others said, no, it went down in one piece. Well, that is a difference. But it's also a contradiction. It cannot be reconciled. It cannot be harmonized. Mm. Um, on the other hand, let's say you know in the Gospels, you have um, you have many differences, uh, lots of differences. But whether those differences amount to a contradiction would be something that can be discussed. In my uh, look at the Gospels, uh, observation of them. I mean, I looked at them for for years, and I made a catalog of all the differences that I found in the Gospels. I was able to, to cover a bunch of them in the book that you mentioned, the new book that just came out. Not all of them, though. They limited me on the word count, so yeah. there's a, a bunch of the things I was not able to, to cover. Yeah. Um, but I, I would say that well over 90% of all the differences in the Gospels are easily and most plausibly explained by the compositional devices that we find in the compositional textbooks that were prescribed for good writing and those compositional devices that we can infer through seeing how Plutarch told the same stories, but yet there are differences between them. Compositional devices that, for the most part, classicists 
have said are going on in ancient biographical and historical literature. They've said this for years. Now we've been able to show many, many examples of this going on in there. Mike, so you mentioned those compositional devices. Could you give us some examples of those using differences in the Gospels to illustrate your point? Sure. Um, there's simplification. There's different ways to simplify. Uh, one would but simplification through um, transferal would be something. So uh, one of my favorite examples is with um, you go to Plutarch and you hear the story about Pompey the Great. And Pompey was this famous uh, Roman general, one of the most powerful men in Rome. He was defeated eventually by Julius Caesar and, and um, was killed. Uh, betrayed by the Egyptians and, and killed. So um, in the year 53, Rome was in a state of great chaos and was about ready to just crumble. There was just so much corruption going on and riots in the streets. And so they usually, in the Roman government, the way that it was set up, the Republic was set up, was instead of having, uh, they, they did have a Senate, but instead of having one chief figure, like we have in the U.S. called the president, they had two chief figures called consuls. And instead of serving for four years like the president, they could only serve for one year. Hmm. Now, um, in the U.S., you can serve as president for two consecutive terms, and then you're done. In Rome, you could, uh, you could serve for as many consulships as you wanted, but you had to wait 10 years before you could run again. Mm. So that's how things went. So in this particular year, we're at the end of the year 53 B.C., Rome is in chaos, 52 B.C. comes the next year, and they, the Senate votes something drastic. They said, look, we've got to do something here um, quickly. We're going to give Pompey a sole consulship here, so, and he can make any laws he wants. He doesn't need to get them passed by the Senate. Just take over and make this work. This is our last-ditch effort. So Pompey established a bunch of really good laws. One of those laws was that you could not go in defense of a friend of yours who was on trial and give a speech of just praise for that person because it could bias the jury and it would really have nothing pertaining to whether he, the person actually committed that crime. Well, Plutarch and other historians report that Pompey proceeded to break his own law when his friend Plancus was on trial. Now, this is reported by Plutarch in two of the biographies, his biography of Cato Eudotensis and his biography of Pompey. Now, in his biography of Cato, he says that Pompey, because he was outside of the city at the time with his army, he had to send in an emissary. He wrote this this. Uh, Speech, and he gave it to an emissary to go in to the city of Rome and read it at Plancus's trial. And this is how other historians report it, too. But in uh, Plutarch's life of Pompey, he has Pompey himself go in and deliver the speech. Well, we know that Pompey did not deliver that speech and that he actually did have an emissary read it. But what Plutarch does is he simplifies, because it was Pompey's words, and he just portrays Pompey as, as reading it, Hmm. Um, and Pompey himself doing it. He simplifies and transfers it to Pompey. We have a similar story in the New Testament, or a similar uh, device, and that is Luke tells us that on one occasion, there was a centurion who had a, a, a sick servant who the centurion valued a lot. So the centurion sent Jewish elders to speak to Jesus, to ask and request Jesus to come 
and or to to heal his servant. Mm-hmm. And so the Jewish elders go and they request it of Jesus, and they say the centurion's worthy of this; he helps our people, etc. Jesus says, "All right, let's go." As they're headed to the centurion's house, the centurion gets word of this, and he sends some of his friends to go tell Jesus and say, "Jesus, the centurion says he is not worthy for you to come under his roof, but look." He's a man of authority, and he tells one soldier to go, and he goes, and one soldier to come, and he comes, and he tells a servant to do something, and he does it. So just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus praises the centurion from afar, whom he never sees. He praises him for his faith, and he heals the servant from afar. Mm-hmm. But when we read the same story in Matthew, Matthew simplifies, and he has the centurion himself go to Jesus right. and make the request. And when Jesus says, let's go, the centurion himself says, no, 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 look, I'm unworthy for you, yada, yada, yada. Same thing. The difference is in Matthew's account, he transfers what the emissaries had said to the mouth of the centurion by simplifying, because these were were actually what the centurions wished. So this is the kind of stuff that we see going on in the compositional devices and, and many others. There's also the, the just the com- compressing. I, I feel like I see quite a bit in, in the Gospels. I mean, I, I'm thinking of like uh, you know, Jairus's daughter um, when, in, yes. in case, it plays itself out because I think Mark is trying to make um, some theological points there. But in in, in the other account, it, it's it's a lot shorter. And uh, instead of the girl dying along the way, she dies. You know, much sooner in the story. There, there's and I feel like that type of thing happens quite a bit among the synoptics. Yep. In fact, uh, you're right about Jairus. Uh, Matthew's account, she's already dead. Whereas mm-hmm. you read it, you know, Mark, and she's at the point of death, and then she dies on the uh, as Jesus is headed that way. Another thing is you have with the uh, the uh, what Jesus cursing the fig tree. When you read it in Mark and Luke, I, I think it is, uh, Jesus curses the fig tree, and then they go into Jerusalem. And then uh, they, at the end of the day, they go back to Bethany, spend the night there. The next day, they're headed into Jerusalem, and Peter notices the fig tree and points it out to Jesus that it has withered up and died. Mm-hmm. But in Matthew, he compresses the account. Jesus curses the fig tree, and immediately it withers and dies. So, yeah, you see compression, and it's usually done by Matthew. Yeah, so just being aware of these literary devices helps us see, okay, this might not be a contradiction, um, it's just the author trying to uh, use this literary device to say his story in a way that's that's helpful to understand and move on to his next point. Um, where to put his points right to make a theological point. You know. Well, not necessarily a theological point. Sometimes there can be theological points, but that's not necessary. This is just typical way of writing ancient biography. Yeah. It's good writing, you know. That's what they were supposed to do. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like they go to, like you said, I mean, it's like there's an there's an understood pattern of, hey, this is the way we write. And um, we're seeing that those types of, of devices show up in the Gospels because that's when they were written. <laughs> that was what w- was accepted at the time there. Again, that difference between our 21st century Western lens trying to look at a first century and having very little understanding about what was was actually going on in the in the literary world in that time so that's correct there is no evidence at all that suggests that matthew mark luke and john formed a committee for the misleading of future historians (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, hey, <laughs> you've mentioned you've mentioned Plutarch a couple of times. Who, who is Plutarch? What? Let's unpack that for people who are who are thinking you're sneezing or something. You know, who's who is Plutarch, and <laughs> and, uh, and why does he matter? Well, Plutarch, I'm not referring to the guy in the Hunger Games. Okay, I want to make that really clear. The real Plutarch lived. He was born around the year 40 in a town in Greece named Chaeronea. Grew up there, spent most of his life there. He became a uh, priest at Delphi. Um, he was uh, he had a patron. We're not sure who that patron was. Uh, we have some ideas, but he had a patron who funded his a lot of his career uh, to write. We we know that he was friends with several emperors and had some honorary titles, honorary consul, and some things that were were given to him. So he did walk around with some um, high powered. Romans for a while. He uh, became mayor of his town for a while. Um, he lived near some uh, battlefields that he was, and knew some eyewitnesses who remembered the Civil War. Uh, one of you know some of the civil wars and the one in which Antony was fighting Brutus and Cassius. You know, uh, so he had some. He had some pretty cool stuff. He died around the year 120. A lot of what we know about the ancient world comes from Plutarch. He wrote. Uh, the Moralia, he's uh, probably best known for what is called his Parallel Lives. He wrote over 60 biographies, of which 50 have survived. Um, of those, 46 are called Parallel Lives. So what he would do is he would compare a Roman and a Greek figure. Like uh, he would compare Alexander the Great as the Greek and Julius Caesar as the Roman, and he would compare them. He'd give all these different parallels on the character traits of these and then contrast them with some differences. So he would he would give a life of Alexander and a life of, of Caesar and then he'd have a very short addendum to these called uh, the parallels and, and he would deal with and, and note the parallels between these two figures. So that's who Plutarch was. Um, he's writing a lot of the stuff probably between the years uh, 95 and 120, maybe a couple of years after 120 when he dies at that time. So as you've gone through, because what you did in your book is you went through primarily Plutarch's lives, these biographies that he wrote, which um, he wrote, uh, I think maybe more biographies that we, that still exist today, maybe than all of the other ones. Correct. Or is that right? Or uh, no, we think that he wrote a little over 60. We don't have a, pro a precise number, but we're thinking it's over a little over 60. So it's probably within the 60s. Yeah. But only 50 of them have survived. Uh, we're missing his life of Augustus. We'd love to have that. We'd love yeah. to have some of these <laughs> other ones. We, we just don't have them. <laughs> if anybody has that, we <laughs> turn that in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there, but, but the, the biographies that were written around the time of Jesus, I think total maybe like in the, in the low 100s. Is that right? There's about 90 of them, um, of which uh, 90 that have, uh, about 90 that have survived, 50 of which were written by Plutarch. You yep. got another 12 that were written by Suetonius. Uh, 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 you have uh, Tacitus's um, uh, life of Agricola, his father-in-law, and, and you have some others that are written around this. But uh, yeah, Plutarch wrote more than half of those that within about 150 years of Jesus on each side. Uh, he's, he wrote more than half of them that have survived. Yeah. So as you as you took the last what seven or eight years. Um, to, to unpack and go through all the all of this with a kind of a fine tooth comb, what what did you see um, Plutarch do in his biographies, and how does that inform some of the ways we should understand 
what the Gospels are doing? Uh, great question. Now, I, this was one of the most fascinating studies in which I've ever been engaged. Um, very little work like this has been done in the past. In fact, the leading Plutarch scholar in the world today is Christopher Pelling, who retired from uh, Oxford two years ago. And um, he had done, up until this book, and he endorsed this book, um, he had done the most exhaustive treatment on this. He took six of Plutarch's 50 biographies, uh, six of the nine which I that I considered in here, and uh, he considered a few, I forgot how many, just a few stories that appear in two or more of those biographies and compared how Plutarch tells the same story, yet tells it differently. Differences appear, sometimes contradictions, and from those he inferred compositional devices, the same kinds of things, transferal, displacement, compression, conflation, things like that. Mm -hmm. The things that most classicists have acknowledged are going on in the ancient literature as compositional devices, but here you're able to pretty much prove it, as close to proof as we can get, right. because it's the same author pretty much using the same sources, telling the same stories, and yet they're differences. So you either acknowledge that this guy was a slop, was very sloppy, or you say that these changes were intentional. Hmm. And most classicists would say most of these changes were intentional. Hmm. So um, I looked at nine of those biographies, and I identified 36 stories that appear in two or more of them. And of those 36, there are differences that appear in 30 of them. And then you start to see patterns of these kind of differences. Again, conflation, compression, displacement, transferal, literary spotlighting, the law of biographical relevance, things like these. Mm. Um, the uh, crafting of narrative details that may be missing from the accounts. Uh, and you see, the, and, and synthetic chronological placement, you, you see these and and you see Plutarch doing these on a regular basis, and then you figure, well, if the Gospels are written within the same genre as Plutarch's lives, as Suetonius' Twelve Caesars, um, then we would expect these same kinds of compositional devices that we find Plutarch using and that we find in the compositional textbooks, we should see these being used by the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, we should be surprised that they're not using them. Right. And then when you read the Gospels with in view of that genre and those compositional devices, the, the differences just melt away. Yeah, right. And the way I like to look at it is, you know, when I was a kid, uh, for Christmas one year, um, I got these books. They, they weren't coloring books. A young kid, you know, probably five or six, seven years old. I got these books, and they had all these lines on them. And you just couldn't make out what was going on. It looked like just uh, like garbage. But it came with two cardboard sunglasses, like, and, and one pair was red and the other was blue. And when you looked at it through the red, uh, you know, one of them, you didn't really see any difference. But when you looked at it through the blue, oh, all of a sudden, things came into focus and you saw a picture there that you didn't see through the other. Right, right. And I, I, it's like this when you read the Gospels in view of their biographical genre. If you look at them without those glasses or the wrong glasses, the glasses being those that focus and understand the Gospels, uh, think of them as 21st century biographies, well, then you're going to see all sorts of differences and you're going to say these are unreliable, they're contradictions, etc. But when you read them through the lenses of first century biography, all of a sudden they make a whole lot more sense 
Mm-hmm. And things come into view you wouldn't see otherwise. Good. Pretty remarkable. Yeah, Mike, I want to come back to that and end with looking at some more of those examples. Um, But Sylvia has a question for us. Yes. So, Mike, it looks like one of your friends wrote in and had an excellent question. And at the beginning, leading up to the question, cited some books recently written involving the Southern Baptist Convention. And the question is... Um, It seems that the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, is moving in the direction of accepting the Gospels as a form of Greco-Roman biography, even though this denomination staunchly adheres to biblical inherency. What are your thoughts on this? And then for us that aren't aware of the SBC movings and things like that, hey, why does it matter what it's categorized as? And so for me, it's, you know, hey, why does this matter and why is there debate around it? Well, um, I guess I would say, first of all, I, I, I... I'm not familiar with what the SBC is doing now since I stopped working at the North American Mission Board a little over six years ago. I, I just haven't been following the SBC much. So I, I don't know what's going on there. What I can say is that a majority of New Testament scholars today, including evangelicals, agree that the Gospels are either Greco-Roman biographies or that they share much in common with them. Mm-hmm. Now, how that works with the doctrine of inerrancy, uh, I don't see it as any challenge whatsoever to that doctrine. Because you have to interpret the Gospels, well, all biblical literature, within the genre in which it is written. So when the psalmist says, uh, ask God to awaken from his sleep, he doesn't really mean for us to think that God is sleeping. And and if we we said, well, if you don't think that God actually sleeps, you're you're denying the inerrancy of Scripture. No, we would say... Um, you misunderstand genre here. Right. You're, you're not properly applying hermeneutics. Or take that uh, Revelation chapter 12 when it talks about a giant sev- uh, seven-headed red dragon whose tail is going to sweep a third of all the stars in the universe down to the earth in the last days. Well, we don't really need to think of that as an actual space monster flying around in the cosmos. Mm-hmm. Revelation is apocalyptic literature, and it needs to be interpreted in that sense. Proverbs needs to be interpreted as wisdom literature, Psalms as as poetry, etc. So when we come to the Gospels, every single piece of literature in the Bible is written within a specific kind of genre. So you interpret it within that genre. So it's a lot of the fundamentalists today want to say, well, you can't consider the Gospels as Greco-Roman biography. Well, what are they then? If they're a unique genre, then you're saying, well, then God acted in a specific way with all the other ancient literature in the Bible until you came to the Gospels. And then he said, I'm going to do something different now, and I'm going to create a unique genre here. Or you can say, you know what? He did this with everything else in the Bible. Why wouldn't he do this with the Gospels? Yeah, Mike, as I think about this type of question and the inerrancy question and the genre question and Again, I I can't help but think that this is an attempt by 21st century Western thinking people to try to fit a round peg in a square hole. You know, yes, we read so much into the text and whether intentionally or not, make them into something that they were never intended to be. And the problems, obviously, that come out of that are enormous (laughs) because because you're trying to get them to do something that they're not intended to do. I, I'd love for, so the the forward 
of your book, which is by Craig Evans, um, who I think has had kind of a crazy couple of months with the some of the stuff he's doing in the Middle East. But but he says he says this in your foreword to the book. He said we moderns have very different expectations of what constitutes historiography or the writing of history. Most of us have no idea how the ancients understood history or how it should be written. Many of us probably assume that the ancients wrote their histories the way that we moderns do, or at least tried to. If we think this, we're wrong. In fact, many of us have little idea how the ancients thought the life and teaching of a great man should be preserved and passed on. And so I, I think that the, the value of what, your, of what your study, I think, has done um, for this question of what genre do the Gospels fit into, it's been a massive contribution because we're able to see that, no, th- this, is, this is the type of literature that was being written while they were being written. For us to think that they were not influenced by this at all is naive or, or yeah. something else. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, one thing I say to my, I'm teaching a, a course, a graduate course on the Gospels now at uh, Houston Baptist University. And one of the things that I continue to say throughout the course and drive home to my students is that we must accept the Gospels and respect them and cherish them and submit to them as God has given them to us, mm-hmm. rather than attempt to force them into a mold of how we think he should have. Right. And that if we fail to do this, we may deceive ourselves into thinking we have a high view of Scripture, when in reality, what we really have is a high view of our view of Scripture. Oh, man. Well, now yeah, you're just preaching. A, a hermeneutical <laughs> hubris, if you will. Yeah. Uh. And, and I also say this, that whatever view we have of the Gospels must be in concert with what we observe in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And what keep uh, some of the people on the far right uh, want to do today is they want to put together a view of the Gospels that they've had for since their youth. Perhaps they were taught it, but they've had it. And they want to have it freeze-dried, pre-packaged, their stamp of approval on it, put on the shelf and pushed on us to purchase and devour without question. And that's when we really have to look at this and say, again, whatever view we have of the Gospels must be in concert with what we observe in the Gospels. Yeah, here is. So let's let's talk about two two more things because we're running out of time. Dude, I wish we had a whole other hour, Um, but we're running out of time. So let's let's move through these quickly. I want to talk about so the, the fact that in the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're called a, a synopsis because when you put them together, in a lot of ways, they read sometimes word for word um, the, the same. So they're very similar with one another. Um, and then obviously John is different. But let's talk about um, the differences where we where we get the actual words of Jesus, um, what scholars mm-hmm. call Sissima Verba. Um, versus the 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 voice of Jesus or the gist of what he was saying. Talk to us a little bit about that, and then I've got a follow-on question about the resurrection. Okay. Let me say something that's in relation to it before I directly answer that. Okay. Most Christians today, even scholars, New Testament scholars, are coming and reading the Gospels, period. Mm. All right. If they were classical scholars, if they were had read in the classics first, they would notice all kinds of differences. And then when you come to the Gospels, if they read them next, the one thing that would shock them is not the differences, but the similarities. Yeah. So one thing that I noticed that really surprised me 
is when you compare how Plutarch tells the same story, we're not talking about different authors. If you want to look at the assassination of Julius Caesar or when Antony attempted to put a laurel on Caesar's head at the Lupercalia Festival a month before Caesar's assassination, compare how those stories are told by Appian, Cicero, Dio, Livy, Nicolaus, Plutarch, Tacitus, or Suetonius and Valeus, and you'll see differences that are far more numerous and larger than what you find in the Gospels. Mm. And when you compare how Josephus tells the same story a couple of times, or how Josephus, who says he's not going to add, subtract, or change things uh, from Scripture, and then you read how what he says is in Scripture, and you see that he does add, subtract, and alter things, um, what surprises you with the Gospels is how closely they stay to their sources, mm. far more than other ancient sources stay with theirs. Good. Now, with that in mind, you said about the gospel, uh, the synoptics in John, mm -hmm. um, the Ipsissima Verba, the Ipsissima Vats. It's difficult to know exactly what Jesus said, the Ipsissima Verba, mm -hmm. um, uh, just because Jesus primarily uh, spoke in Aramaic, although he no doubt spoke in Greek on many occasions. Mm -hmm. Remember, they're taking this and they're recalling it from memory, and probably that memory is quite accurate because they heard him teach the same things over and over and over and over, mm. hundreds of times over the one and a half to three years that they were with him. All right, so it would have been easily recalled these things. Mm. But what we do see in John, I think what we do see in John, and most Johannine scholars would say this, that John, the reason he is so different is because he is taking things that Jesus implied in his teachings in the synoptics, mm -hmm. and he he restates them, paraphrases and restates them, so that in John he is saying them explicitly. Hmm. So did Jesus ever say the words, you know, that some of the things that we find in John? You know, you read in Mark how he is, you hear about the Mark, uh, the Messianic secret. He doesn't come out and say things just, boom, you know, out there publicly. I'm this, I'm this, I yes, I'm the Messiah, and, mm. and all this. He says it in shrouded, cryptic language until he is on trial before the high priest. Mm. But in John, you don't find any cryptic language. He's out there, I am this, I mm. am this, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, yeah. you know, um, and things like this. So many scholars think that, again, what John has done is taking what Jesus implicitly says mm. in the synoptics, and he restates them, explicitly in John. Yeah, and I think too in John, we have, uh, and I've always just thought this about uh, the Gospel of John, and obviously I think there's probably the, the widest agreement is that the, the beloved disciple or the disciple that Jesus loves is if you take a John authorship that he's talking about himself there, yes. you, you have a much more intimate picture of Jesus. Um, you have a picture of Jesus where I think that his even the way that he starts the gospel being explicitly uh, referring to the divinity of Jesus immediately in his gospel and then, you know, uh, focusing in on the passion narrative and giving these insights that as an eyewitness, no doubt, you know, he would have remembered. I mean, you, you, you think about the times in your life where massive earth shattering events took place. And a lot of us remember them like they happened yesterday. And mm -hmm. I think we get a picture there that's that's a little more personal. Well, why don't you do this in the next couple of minutes before we leave, given your study in this, what are some of the major 
And, and not only given your study of this, but also the times that you travel around and talk to other people and what are some of the major takeaways that you would say, hey, somebody walking away from this today, I want you to get this? Well, I, I would say that, you know, looking at all this stuff, I was immersed in it for eight years. Uh, well, probably more like seven and a half years I was immersed in it and uh, actually doing the research and the writing, you know, really contemplating all this stuff. So, Sorry, man, you can paraphrase. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a rounding up, right? Rounding up. So, um, I would say this does not at all prove the historical reliability of the Gospels. Hmm. It doesn't. There's nothing in this that would give a positive case for the historical reliability of the Gospels. Hmm. But what this does, in my opinion, it eliminates the objection that says the Gospels are historically unreliable based right. on contradictions. Right, right. I don't think that that is any longer a sustainable objection. Hmm. Now, that is not to say that I have resolved or that any of us can resolve all the differences in the Gospels. I don't think we can. There are a handful of differences in the Gospels that, honestly, I don't know what's going on. Yep. Uh, they're candidates. We could call them candidates for errors or contradictions. Hmm. Um, you can always harmonize or present a scenario in which it's not. You can do that with, I mean, there are a few cases in Plutarch's life that just seem to be obvious errors. Mm. that the classical scholars will say, yeah, Plutarch just got it wrong here. Mm. But if you want, you can harmonize it or do what you want, come up with solutions, mm. that possible solutions where it's not an error. Mm. The same thing is there with the Gospels. We don't know. It. You know, some of those could be errors. They may not be errors. Mm. Uh, we can't say one way or the other, you know, at least historically speaking. Right. We may have a theology that says it can't be an error, and that's fine. I'm just saying historically speaking, we can't make that judgment. Right. All we can say is that there are a few times a handful in the Gospels where he'd say, eh, I don't know what's going on here. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, in the high 90 percentile, I think that, you know, these differences, they're not contradictions. Mm -hmm. They're compositional devices. Right, man. That's that's really helpful. Well, man, uh, to tie a few things off. So Mike, Mike initially came to us about a year and a half ago to do a training day that we did in the fall of 2015. 15. 15. I can't remember what yeah. year it is. Uh. <laughs> um, but in the fall of 2015, and we talked about a lot of issues around how the Gospels came to be. Dr. Daryl Bach talked about that. Uh, Justin Bass talked about that. Dan Wallace talked about that. And then Dr. Lacona spoke on the evidence for the historicity of the resurrection. And so uh, Sylvia is going to push out a link to that to you guys. And we'll just encourage you to, to check that out. Um, again, there's so much, as you can see, if you're following on the slides, there's so much we weren't able to get to because um, yeah, we really need a couple, maybe even a couple more hours to do this. But but hopefully this has been helpful for you. I would encourage you, if you are a student of this and you really do want to know, dig deeper into what we're talking about, please pick up a copy of Mike's book. I've got one right here on the table and it's got my markings and highlights and notes in it. But please do that. Mike, thanks again for your time, for your discipline, for your study in this, and for the way that you're serving the church. Uh, thanks, Mike. Oh, thanks. Mm. Wonderful being with you guys. Love it, man. Well, uh, until next time, you guys have a great month, and come and see us again in March.